This is Theology Gaming Monologues, and this is Castlevania Symphony of the Night. Or, if you want to be more technical about it, Akumajo Dracula Nocturne in the Moonlight. So, a bit of background. When I played video games in the early 1990s, my preference primarily came from action games. I like Mario, I like Sonic, that sort of thing. However, my brother continually played whatever JRPG he could get his hands on, and he ended up forcing me to like them too. My personal favorite, as I may have said on a podcast or two, is Final Fantasy IV or VI, even if I think VII's technically the perfect Final Fantasy game. Returning to the early 1990s, we had no shortage of either game in great quantity and quality from Earthbound and Chrono Trigger to Super Metroid in Super Mario World 2. Hey, it's not like I picked a special time to be born, it just kinda happened that way. As such, my tastes tend toward the Japanese, the action-based, and the statistics-based, sorta. They lend themselves to a particular, if arbitrary, goal. At the very least, big numbers going up provide the player with a sense of accomplishment, whether through successful reflex-oriented challenge or exhaustive preparation for a tricky boss fight. Since I attended school at the exact same time, the same work ethic applied to both areas. I get A's through preparation and execution of my plans and memorization, especially when it counted, high school for college scholarships, hooray! My parents would reinforce this through video game rewards, get an A on a report card, and get a video game for your trouble. At the same time that I got the game I wanted for that particular quarter, as in, you know, schools have quarterly report cards and stuff, I also receive a game to continue learning those same skills. As you might expect, this placed certain expectations and tastes into my entertainment far before I had the consciousness or self-awareness to understand my own tastes. I just tend to like my entertainment straightforward, rationally based, in contrast to, say, Emotional Resonance, example, Lost, I do not like that show, and altogether fun. The Bible and Christianity equaled serious business. Everything else seemed ephemeral by comparison, so video games filled an outlet there. That fun they provide might come from overcoming a particularly challenging obstacle, but there's so much variety in said obstacles that I hesitate to call strategy in advance or on the fly better or worse. There are two sides of the same coin. I guess that means I wouldn't be opposed to a mix of the two as long as said mix worked effectively. I imagine that's the impetus for the recent glut of RPG elements you may have seen in just about every game released in the past decade. Well, not every single one, but seeing that one tagline emblazoned on every box tends to make one a little bit annoyed after a while. Either the quote-unquote elements exist merely as a marketing ploy, let's be honest about Borderlands, or 
they hamper the actual action elements so much that they intentionally gimp your ability to win by sheer skill. Bethesda's recent Fallout games are a notable example of this practice, although that's not really what they're going for, but still, that's probably why I don't really like any games that Bethesda makes. And I mean Bethesda the development company, not De Bethesda the publisher. This is kind of a delicate balance, and not many companies or development houses understand this simple concept and how to balance this. Just to cite a recent example, which is related to the main subject, which I lost somewhere along 500 words ago or something. <laughs> uh, Odin Sphere attempts to make an action game with RPG elements. Now, when I'm talking about Odin Sphere, I'm talking about the original Odin Sphere, not Leftrazir, which is the new re-release. In Odin Sphere, you really can't win on pure skill alone. The delay between your attacks coupled with the inability to dodge or avoid attacks through some invincible maneuver, as in, let's say, most action games that are on the market now, in addition to enemies not being stunned when you attack them, means that your pure reflex-oriented skills don't work. Rather, Vanillaware wants to force an impression on the player. Use items, use all these RPG-like tools at your disposal to win. You're gonna take hits, so throw some plants out there and grow some health. Yes, it's a weird game. Buy some more inventory space so you have reserve rations. Also, use said bag space for extremely powerful magic spells. Unfortunately, Onusphere just doesn't make sense to me. Expectation counts for a lot in video games, and the aesthetic style certainly look like a throwback to side-scrollers like Final Fight. Who expected such an odd hybrid? Vanillaware later made Muramaza the Demon Blade, which cleaved the game in half to support both action and RPG-focused players, but it comes at the expense of making the game's Metroidvania styling interesting. Ah, and we come to that much maligned word, Metroidvania, which is a weird portmanteau if I've ever seen one. Castlevania Symphony of the Night started the trend of combining Super Metroid's near-impeccable action exploration elements with a JRPG, and through some miracle, found great success. In fact, it's probably the only quote-unquote good one of the lot, and I say that rather affectionately to its successors and predecessors. But let's start with Super Metroid first, just for completion's sake. Super Metroid didn't come into my hands until far later, say 1998, as my uncle, who's always ready for the next big thing at that point, dumped his Super NES collection on us and proceeded to buy a PlayStation. I played Super Metroid at or around the same time I played Symphony of the Night, so I had a view of both as contemporaries. Super Metroid combined an eerie atmosphere, impeccable controls, and a wonderful sense of progress in learning new skills into an illusionary open world. Let's be honest, the progression in Super Metroid's rather straightforward until you strive for speedruns, and that's people breaking a game for challenge or because they're kind of bored. Still, the connections between all the levels and areas on Zebes, which is the planet, created a sense of continuity between the different worlds. Here was an alien world, unlike our own, filled with dangerous creatures and bizarre sights. The wrecked ship portion of the game always frightened me a little bit. The music's setting and excessively creepy and doesn't even fit into the science fiction vibe that Metroid series games attempt. Here was a weird ghost story, told entirely through mechanics, sights, and sounds without any kind of explanation as to why the ship was there, what became of the crew, and why a flying cyclopean poltergeist wanted to kill you. Much as I like Prime, Super Metroid did the storytelling idea right by providing enough context, but not too much. The player gets to draw his own unspoken, unheard conclusions. It's very neat, and yeah, I just spoiled it, unfortunately, but 
you get the idea. And I guess this is partly why I like Dark Souls and Bloodborne, but that's a totally separate subject. As far as the weapon choice in Super Metroid and the clear sense of progression, it's obvious that there's numbers girding that increase in strength to a fixed number. Samus doesn't receive level ups, but she can find hidden weapon and health canisters with the benefit of her new abilities. Functionally, it's the same, but practically it provides an incentive for players to search and explore every nook and cranny for new items. If you couldn't defeat a boss, perhaps a new health upgrade could put you over the edge. Maybe you didn't know where you're going. I have only played it too many times and seen the rather obvious path to completion, but it's entirely possible to lose your direction in the throes and joys of exploration. I can't count how many times a tangential path would set off a mental note. Can't get over here. We'll do that later. Lo and behold, searching's always worth your while. Other games made Easter eggs for fun. Super Metroid made them a tangible and exciting part of the game, and that makes a lot of difference. As far as Samus's control goes, she works perfectly for this kind of game. This wasn't necessarily a game about intense shooting action, like Contra, more and more like lots of platforming with puzzle solving and pattern recognition kind of added onto it. You do fight enemies a whole lot, but they're more stepping stones in between the moments that you find yourself lost. <laughs> Sometimes they become part of the puzzle as indestructible enemies and the freeze beam proved pretty regularly. Samus's jump always felt pretty floaty, but that's kind of the appeal. The game didn't kill you for lacking precision because it wasn't always looking for it. It wanted you to fall into new areas, find yourself isolated and alone in a giant, hostile alien planet. I suppose that doesn't sound too much fun when reading a description, but Super Metroid provide a moody exploration experience that was exciting and quite game-like. You didn't need to sacrifice the game mechanics for the story. The story existed before your eyes in the look of a strange creature or a dilapidated room containing ancient technology. It set a precedent in more ways than one, and many games unfortunately borrowed all of the wrong ideas from it. They thought we liked getting stuff. No, said the gamers, we like getting interesting stuff. We liked investing in the, to use a completely an academic and pretentious sounding phrase, ludic language of the mechanics to express ourselves. Since Super Metroid provided plenty of that while using aesthetics to enhance the mechanical experience, that's what people remember. I suppose that's why I don't think speedruns add much to the game, or any game, even if it was intended for Super Metroid. I like to take my time in the virtual theme park, thank you very much. To go too far forward, other games in the same vein failed to get it once the word came out on Super Metroid's awesomeness. That's not even a word, is it? <laughs> in addition to that, Super Metroid's critical legacy outlasted its commercial success. It wasn't the feel-good hit of 1994. That actually went to Donkey Kong Country, which is a pretty good game in its own right. It sold incredibly poorly in Japan, to you and I's surprise, which Makes sense given that the Sega Saturn and PlayStation emerged at the same time in Japan. If you remember, they were released in 94-ish, so yeah. Metroid actually has never really been that popular in, in Japan. North America and Europe took far more kindly to Super Metroid, but it never has posted numbers the way Nintendo's other franchises do, especially like Zelda. It's no wonder they kind of retired Metroid for eight years after Super Metroid came out because uh, Gunpei Yokoi uh, died. And he was kind of the architect of Metroid in many ways. So what happened was Symphony of the Night literally resurrected the entire Metroid style. 
So let me roll back here a little bit. Returning to my story, I played Super Metroid because I didn't own any non-Nintendo systems. I had a Genesis, but I didn't really play it. At the same time, we were all in a Nintendo 64 fever, but Nintendo's latest console missed something important to me, which is JRPGs. There were literally none. Quest 64 doesn't count, and if you think it does, you're dead to me now and forever. As such, the first two years after the Nintendo 64 released left me without my primary genre of choice. Sure, I had plenty of Nintendo games to play, and some of Rareware's best work came around that time frame, but I kinda miss my RPGs and fighting games. My brother also saw that Final Fantasy made the jump to the PlayStation, that most maligned of competitors. What choice did we have in Christmas 1998 then to buy one? The PlayStation brought many of my family's favorite franchises back to the household, including Mega Man. I remember holding a used copy of Mega Man X4 for $34.99. Oh and picking it up as if it were no big deal. Can you imagine paying that much now for this? Of course, one other game stuck out to me in my trip to Electronics Boutique and Babbage's Symphony of the Night. Heck, I've still got it in my house ready and waiting for yet another playthrough. Like Super Metroid, I found myself playing the game over and over again. We could call it apples and oranges, but I just kind of prefer Symphony of the Night's brand of exploration to that of Super Metroid. Something about its whole appearance and mechanical depth just fills me with the sort of glee that those JRPGs and action games of old did. Of course, it didn't actually play like any other Castlevania game that came before it. Let's get into that. We could call Symphony of the Night an outlier from its progenitors. The series that spawned it never bothered with the Metroid franchise's brand of slow-paced exploratory action. Instead, Castlevania is better known for its precise controls, difficult yet eminently conquerable stages, memorable set pieces and bosses, and that most glorious of video game weapons, the whip. The endless battle of vampire-hunting Belmont clan inspired many yells of inspiration and victory, and just as many cries of curses and broken controllers. The real appeal of Castlevania's early years came from its unrelenting challenges and need for both skilled play and strategy. Levels felt a bit like puzzle pieces waiting to be put together. Since Simon Belmont's jump arc did not allow for course correction in mid-air, probably something that Konami stole outright from Capcom's Ghouls and Ghosts series, you need to make quite a commitment when jumping over a chasm. Could an enemy spawn when I jump? Could I attack them in mid-air, or would I plummet to my doom? Stairs, which you needed to actually walk up, also presented the same problem. Enemy configurations took full advantage of the stage's composition to kill you. Every encounter became a duel to the death, and your wits and skill would bring you to victory. Which is kind of why I say Dark Souls is the modern Castlevania, but again, ignore the Dark Souls references. <laughs> However, preparing in advance meant you could traverse obstacles easily if you paid attention. Although Simon only used a whip when lashed straight ahead, Castlevania's famous sub-weapon system allowed for multiple angles of attack. Thrown axes worked on an arc, while Holy Water placed devastating fire on the ground, and Holy Crosses worked just like boomerangs, which is probably one of the more useful uh, weapons for most situations. Players could memorize the levels over time and develop strategies for when they knew a particular obstacle would appear and where specific sub-weapons would drop. The same goes for the infamous wall chicken. Health power-ups that appeared in, well, walls when struck with a whip. Again, video games. 
Uh, <laughs> Castlevania always encourages explorations down a linear path and experimenting with all the tools at your disposal. Failure to adapt meant death, and it remained a harsh law. While Castlevania's difficulty remains in the public consciousness, it's not that hard. Probably due to the fact that Konami's new franchise arrived first on consoles, unless you call Haunted Castle a Castlevania game, although I kind of debate whether or not that's the case, Castlevania's pretty forgiving overall. Lose all your lives and you merely begin at the stage which you reached. There's no password system, but like all consoles, you can just kind of leave the NES on if you want. Continual plays meant you kind of kept learning with enough persistence, but, you know, that's how arcade games and video games in general operated in the time period. Of course, the distinctive visual style and musical touches also enhanced the experience. Seriously, do you not know a Castlevania tune? They've been playing in the background this whole time. That soundtrack still reminds me of all those trying times working my way through the Castle of Dracula. It's both rocking and haunting at the same time, and nearly every track on the Castlevania soundtrack does this amazingly well. They've been remixed time and again, and it's quite a testament to their longevity in the popular consciousness. Perhaps the supernatural monster movie theming also helps out a little bit. Fighting the mummy, or Frankenstein's monster, or Dracula created the first quote-unquote horror game, so to speak. At the same time, it embraced popular culture. It also brought an element of fear and dread in the mechanics. The game's visuals and choice of setting simply added to the effect. A horror and skill-based video game hadn't really been done. Leave it to Konami, former masters of the arcades, to come up with something special. You ascended the Dark Castle, overcoming obstacle after obstacle to take on the Lord of Darkness, and you could win with enough skill and determination. Trust me, it's quite a rush. In the gothic-styled chip tune music added to the atmosphere and flavor. <laughs> now, the other wonderful thing, which most people are not going to really mention, regarding Castlevania comes from its utter, complete lack of consistency. So yeah, there's B-movie monsters and mythical creatures all over this thing. It works well regardless, though. Video games in their prime became wonderful exposés of the bizarre and wonderful. Worlds came into being solely out of the needs for mechanical consistency, player conveyance and recognition, or simply because the developers thought something looked awesome. You can't blame them. Development teams always make better games when they actually play the game themselves. It makes no sense why this motley menagerie of scary monsters would all appear in one game, except for this reason. This schlockfest always made Castlevania special in my mind, the exact opposite of Metroid's aesthetic consistency. It shows a complete and utter disdain for all of its source material, and kind of a lack of care for whatever tropes they copied to make their own thing. Hence, why Castlevania turned out so great. Still, the original game nearly perfected the design. What else could Konami do but make sequels after its success? Like most sophomore efforts from companies other than Capcom, they had mixed success. Most people lament the release of Castlevania II, Simon's Quest. It tried, in its own completely haphazard and completely unsuccessful way, to turn Castlevania into Zelda. You look for clues, you search around for items and abilities, or the money to buy them. Unfortunately for the West, the game was hampered with a terrible translation that made most of said clues and intuitive wordplay in the Japanese version an utter mess. I mean, who the heck came up with the idea of crouching near a wall for 10 seconds with a special item to wait for a tornado to take you away to the next area? Like, who the heck was going to figure that out? That doesn't make any sense. 
Nor did the actual game, whose confusing color schemes and bad platforming really kind of made it unplayable without a god in today's world. Castlevania III Dracula's Curse returned the series to its linear and challenging roots with the addition of multiple characters. Branching paths meant each playthrough would allow Simon to recruit new helpers such as Grant the Thief, Cypher the Magician, and Alucard, Dracula's son. It doesn't do much more than refining the formula of Castlevania's first foray in both aesthetics and music. I could also say the same for Rondo of Blood, the PC Engine CD exclusive that everyone babbled about back in the day because we couldn't actually play it. Uh, it brought CD quality music and unbelievable animated graphics while still retaining Castlevania 3's branching paths and multiple endings. And, uh, yeah, I guess they also remade the original, which was Super Castlevania 4. I didn't find it all that great, though. It kind of lacks something. After perfecting this wonderful blend of action and strategy, Konami couldn't really think of anything else to do with the series, which is why they, they released a few portable versions, which you shouldn't really play, and one really bizarre Genesis game, Bloodlines, which it doesn't really play like a Castlevania game, but it does retain the schlock in droves. As well, they released a truncated and relatively bad port of Rondo to the Super NES, which no one liked because it's like a completely different game. I, who the heck knows what they were doing back then? So if you want to think of it this way, the last game in a series circa 1995 was a lousy port of a pretty good game that never came out in America, which <laughs> I don't think you'd exactly call a swan song. In any event, the series needed a kickstart, a boost, or a vitalization or a kick in the bum. Obviously, the fundamentals were sound, but what could bring Castlevania into the new era? Of course, when I mean new era, I mean 32-bit era. Japan already had the Sega Saturn and the Sony PlayStation vying for dominance with the newfangled and now hilariously ugly polygonal graphics of the time. Where could Castlevania fit into this mold? Either it would make the transition to 3D, which never actually happened, or use the new technology to boost its 2D graphics to new heights and new ideas, which sort of happened. One wondered where they would take Castlevania, in all honesty. How about a weird spin-off? Those always work. So it was that they gave the Castlevania series to young producer Koji Igarashi. They handed him a multi-million dollar franchise and told him, run with it. He could break any rule and taboo of the series as long as it retained certain aesthetic and stylistic features. <laughs> Here is it, something you would never see in the video game industry today. Handing an unknown director a gigantic project with little to no guidance at all. Well, I guess he did kind of come into prominence with the release of the dating simulation Tokimeki Memorial, but I can't imagine that was something I was familiar with until a few years ago and probably in research for this monologue. Apparently, Igarashi wanted to give the series more replay value and make the non-existent quote-unquote storyline more consistent. In his words, At the time, the series was developed in a very scattered way by various different groups, and nobody had overarching control of it from a top level. Because of this, there were many different storylines and conflicting timelines. I tried my best to integrate them so as to not confuse the consumer. The first Castlevania I worked on was Symphony of the Night, and there I tried to clean up the timeline. Honestly, when I read that, I wasn't quite sure what he meant. Certainly, A Symphony of the Night actually exists as a direct sequel to Rondo of Blood. Yes, it's a sequel to a game that was unreleased in the United States for more than a decade after Symphony of the Night's release. I don't know how that makes any sense. But the story, even in that game, barely existed at all except through horrible voice acting and a couple overlays of written text. So, 
What happened? I'm going to make a conjecture and say that Iga wanted to retain that Castlevania feeling while also taking elements from previous games in the series. If Simon's Quest wasn't a major influence, I'd feel baffled. Rondo of Blood obviously inspired a lot of the plot and graphical style. I mean, like, more than half the sprites are pretty much lifted wholesale. And the game does borrow a lot from Metroid series. In fact, I'd go as far to say that Symphony of Night appears a completely happy accident of time, place, influence, and just play magic and or circumstance. It's that perfect combination of the last gasp of a two-dimensional zeitgeist, and I don't think you're ever going to see a game quite like it again from Iga or otherwise. Although, who knows? Let's see Bloodstained Symphony. Let's see how Bloodstained actually turns out. Well, I don't know. Why do I say this? I can say with total uttering conviction that Castlevania Symphony of Night falls into the mold of its predecessors for one simple reason. It is stupid in nearly every way. Their attempt to make Castlevania into a lore-based and focused storyline completely failed. Who knows what they were thinking, but given that Symphony of Night contains all of five cutscenes or so to establish context, I'm not sure how they thought this would work. Maybe 1997 remained a time of relative simplicity in our narratives, or maybe we just didn't care, but it's pretty awful even now. Just watch the introduction, which attempts to make Castlevania work as an epic story, and you'll see what I mean. The introduction and its voice acting have found their own form of parody and derision across the video game community. It's bad, but it's bad in the best possible way. Sorry, Ega, but if you were expecting us to take it seriously, you kind of failed pretty brilliantly. So now, Richter, who was the protagonist of Rondo of Blood, is the villain, but anyone can pretty much guess that Dracula sparks the real conflict. So this sets up and lets the player become a half-human, half-vampire son of Dracula named Alucard, who was in Castlevania 3, but he was definitely not as cool, quote-unquote. Obviously, a redesigned art style creates an entirely new game, and in the process made Alucard into a great protagonist. In his own Bishonen way, he goes off to set things right and kill a million monsters along the way. Would it surprise you at this point that the game liberally copies from every other Castlevania? Yes, the same B-movie monster tropes, the same gothic-inspired music, and the same lack of consistency. In fact, the Metroid style allows the creators to literally go wild with monster design and the aesthetics of the levels. Some reused sprites pop up here and there, mostly from Rondo of Blood, and it's kind of justifiable given the paper-thin plot, but many designs appear for the first time here and now. Stealing from sources as diverse as Greek mythology and death metal bands, Azagal, anyone? They really pull out all the stops in making a diverse range of enemies to encounter. I especially like Olrox, who, hey, has his own tastefully decorated area of the castle because he's so classy. In fact, he represents a token gesture towards the Nosferatu vampire, if the character sprite tells you anything. Once again, Symphony of the Night plays like a love letter to monster movies, mythology, and whatever crazy ideas come into their heads. Hence the inconsistency, which spans wildly from area to area. Like Metroid, the game divides its stages by both aesthetic and musical cues. A loading screen room demarcates them even more clearly for those who want it a little more oblivious. However, unlike Metroid's relatively similar areas, the designers took free reign to implement whatever ideas came into their heads. You've got the standard places you'd expect in a castle, like a castle entrance and a keep, but expect to traverse a coliseum, yeah, that's in a castle, a marble gallery, the catacombs, 
a library, a clock tower, a chapel, and an alchemy laboratory. Typical things you'd see in a castle. The art design's top-notch, evoking the feeling of a castle while still maintaining a sense of difference for each area. You can tell they all had an extraordinary amount of time and effort poured into the backgrounds and their structure. Michiru Yamane crafts exquisite themes to accompany your travels through these environments and has to be one of my favorite video game soundtracks of all time. You'd expect some appropriately dark stuff and themes like that of the Keep fulfill that role, but Yamane keeps the mood surprisingly jazzy in many places. This first appears in the Marble Gallery, whose theme I can't really seem to get out of my head. Go on Spotify. It's on Spotify for some reason. It crops up again in the Coliseum theme, which basically turns the game into Castlevania Jazz Fusion Edition. Then Yamana gives you whiplash with the rock and roll stylings and wonderful guitar solos of the Clock Tower theme. It's all pretty brilliant and, again, hilariously inconsistent, which makes the whole experience all the more endearing. Who else would think to throw this music into a really dark game, supposedly? That's kind of the point. Castlevania made the transition into the 32-bit era with Symphony of the Night, but not fully. It retained elements of the past while charging forward into the future of video games. In other words, it's kind of a game bursting with ideas from all over the place. Just look at Alucard's vast arsenal and you'll begin to develop an appreciation for the myriad systems at play. Alucard, unlike every other Castlevania protagonist, functions much like a JRPG character. He levels up by killing enemies, and you can see how much damage your attacks do too. He finds and buys new equipment to upgrade, and he even learns magic attacks which are performed like 2D fighting game moves. In addition, Alucard develops new skills the Metroid way by finding a special item that gives you a power to double jump or maybe even shapeshift into a bat, a wolf, or mist. Yeah, mist. <laughs> In addition, the sub-weapons remain a part of the Castlevania experience, as well as tiny companions called familiars who aid you in particular ways. Some kind of find you items, some attack things, yeah, there's lots of weird stuff to find. All these contribute to giving Alucard a diverse moveset, which gives the player tons of powerful tools by which to express themselves. At times, it's almost overwhelming. However, you never really need all this stuff. Like any proper gaming kleptomania, you merely gather these things in your giant chest of imaginary things and move on. Still, what's unique is that lots of equipment holds special properties that aren't obvious at first glance, and you can't really find out unless you mess around with them. The game constantly encourages experimentation, if not to kill enemies in unique ways, then to find secret areas or break the level sequence in half. Like any good Metroid game, you'll find ways to subtly manipulate the game to your own advantage, except the developers actually give you the tools here. You don't necessarily need to glitch something out to progress, or even defeat the most powerful boss in the game without doing so much as anything but holding two buttons down. I'm referring to the infamous Shield Rod, which, combined with any shield in the game, causes a unique effect with that shield. If you want to be Gallimoth, which is a Kid Dracula reference, if you want to just destroy him completely, because technically he's the hardest boss in the game, the Shield Rod, combined with the Alucard Shield, allows you to destroy this mega boss, harder than Dracula even, with like a button press. And you might say to me, Zach, this takes the fun out of playing the game if you can beat like the hardest boss in five seconds. And to which I say, yeah, I agree. I don't do this, because I want to, like, fight Gallimoth for realsies. I've done it, like, by hand quite a lot, and it's satisfying, because he has a giant health pool, and he's a giant boss, and he's, like, three or four screens tall, and it's just a tough fight, but it's fun. But, imagine how much time and mental energy you would need to actually figure out the shield rod trick. 
<laughs> How do you beat the boss if your reflexes aren't up to snuff? As a follow-up, what's the one source of energy that will never run out? Brain power. If you could dream it, you could do it. Or, you know, if you could think long and hard enough and ignore my universe of energy references, a solution in some unorthodox testing might present a solution. Remember, this game existed before the time of the internet, for the most part, and people like me even still figured it out. The game's filled with constant secrets and multiple ways to play your way, but in this case, they didn't need to advertise it. The game spoke for itself. There's no long tutorial, or extensive walkthrough, or anything to that effect. Would a game even start with you playing a completely different game style before the true game even began? I can't even imagine them today. Plus, the developers added the inverted castle to add even more playtime to the whole experience. You need to find out how to get there, but boy, does it make the game even better. When we say exploration nowadays, it mostly means wandering around a wonderfully rendered yet bland recreation of a city or a desert. Here, everything's interesting and crazy at the exact same time. Honestly, I don't think Konami has topped Symphony of the Night since, or probably ever will top it if recent events are going to tell us anything. There's nothing quite like Symphony of the Night, and even its successors did little to improve on the formula in any meaningful way. Rather, they became more and more serious in tone and fiddle with the game to make it more linear for some reason. They failed to see the fun in it, and Ego ran the series into the ground without seeing why it became so successful. Not consistency, but inconsistency. Not focus, but lack of it. Castlevania usually thrives when it's allowed to march to the beat of its own drum, and dies miserably when co-opted into something else like, I don't know, God of War clone? Yeah, Lords of Shadow is kind of a giant sigh fest for me. Why do I say this so vehemently? I suppose I owe it to the discoveries of my 11-year-old self who loves Symphony of the Night to death, yet the game itself contributed to its strange pseudo-narrative as well. It's utterly strange and yet bizarrely prevalent with religious themes and illusions. I remember finally buying the game sometime in 1998. I found myself in the beginning sequence with superpowered Alucard whose equipment would suddenly and deliberately disappear at the hands of the physical embodiment of death. This did not sit well with my mother. I mean, seriously. Why would that suddenly become fine and dandy in a Christian household? I told her at the time, it's just a fantasy game, and I still believe that. Yet that doesn't mean stories aren't always true in some sense. Given that, as I probably said before, our family turned Mortal Kombat into a pastime for 67-year-old children, you would imagine anything goes. Not so. Spiritual issues and creatures involving said spiritual issues provoked a lot more controversy in my house than anything else. Magic, not a big deal. Blood, gore, completely fake and ephemeral. Dracula and vampires? Well, that's, that's a different issue. Not that we opposed the Halloween holiday with some church-based bastardization, if anybody remembers harvest festivals, but we certainly didn't dress up as vampires or creatures of the night. The modern vampire actually shares little in common with real vampires. They rejected light because they rejected Christ, and they rejected the cross because they could not stand one that gave life and love infinitely, rather than preying on the lives of others. To suck the life out of others for your own personal gain, whether in monetary or relationship terms, turns you into a husk of a human being. You can no longer stand the light of day, and must feed at night and draw others into your swirl of madness. You might say, as Fred Clark does, that the cross confounds the vampire because he can't understand its powerlessness. This is a long quote, so bear with me. Some mistakenly believe 
that this is because the cross is a holy symbol imbued with religious power. But this is wrong. The symbol, like the thing itself, is powerless. And that's the point. That is why vampires can't tolerate it. Most vampires don't believe in the cross, but that hardly matters. It's the idea of the thing that gives them fits. The cross confronts vampires with their opposite, with the rejection of power in its single-minded pursuit. It suggests that no one is to be treated as prey, not even an enemy. The idea of the cross, in other words, suggests that vampires have it wrong, that they have it backwards, and in fact, that those others that they regard as prey are actually, somehow, winning. This notion is incomprehensible for vampires. The one thing they're certain of, the thing that drives them and tells them who they are and how the world works and that they've got it all figured out, is that the key to immortality is in choosing to be the predator rather than the prey. The idea that this might be wrong is so befuddling, so contradictory to everything they have chosen to be that it forces them to recoil. They just can't get past it. When you imagine other people as tools for use by whatever methodology, church and state equally included, then taking up the vampiric mantle takes little nudging. If you've ever wondered why Castlevania has a chapel section with the most elaborate gothic architecture and Christian symbolism strewn throughout, now you know why. The gaudy, gold-inlaid cross of extravagance does not frighten the vampire. They take advantage of mixing the sacred worship of Christ with the vulgar profanity of wealth, a root of evil. Vampirism takes many forms and finds many justifications. Vampire stories in this sense appear like allusions to real life. They're true in the sense that they tell us something about ourselves and where our decisions can lead. It shouldn't surprise you that Symphony of the Night starts with just such a justification from none other than the Lord of Darkness himself, Dracula. Die, monster! You don't belong in this world! It was not by my hand that I'm once again given flesh. I was called here by humans who wish to pay me tribute. Tribute? You steal men's souls and make them your slaves. Perhaps the same could be said of all religions. Your words are as empty as your soul. Mankind ill needs a savior such as you. What is a man? A miserable little pile of secrets. But enough talk. How about you? Again, these lines sound hilarious now, but it doesn't necessarily follow that the meaning behind them suddenly disappears. Dracula Vlad Tepes doesn't attack human beings out of some desire for their souls or their blood. He wants to help them. They want to worship him. And so Dracula returns from Castlevania every 100 years or so to try once again, only to find himself bested by members of a vampire-hunting bloodline. The Belmonts, obviously. Dracula believes that humans call him to the world to provide a contrast to good and righteousness and to provide a different path to follow, that of darkness. Note the comparisons to religion, only a vampire would say such a thing, right? And the accusations that men aren't complex beings of good and evil impulses, just a pile of secrets. <laughs> of course, vampires rarely talk about anyone but themselves, and it shows here. Where else can I project my distaste for the light than to see evil wherever I look? Dracula is not redeemed in this introductory sequence. Like every time before, he screams in agony as he finds himself back from whence he came to hell. Which I'm guessing is not a wonderful home. <laughs> this makes it all the more surprising when the game suddenly tackles you with the fact that you play as Dracula's son Alucard. What? Really? So how does a vampire become good? 
Well, a vampire doesn't. But if you're part human, as the game makes apparent about Alucard, then your vampiric impulses strike against your human impulses, and that's a very precarious place. Note that Alucard never, ever bites anyone in the entire game, nor does the game even provide this as an ability. Yes, you turn into a bat, but you never perform the essential function of a vampire. Alucard clearly refuses to treat human beings as prey, as the nightmare portion of the castle shows that he actively resists it. Still, he has every right to act this way. A mob killed his mother, claiming her to be a witch, and having the child of mixed blood probably didn't help matters. Alucard, though, refuses to take revenge. He would rather see the good of humanity rather than the bad, and that's a very difficult step to take. Forgiveness in the light of heinous evil sounds impossible, but that is why Christ tells you to love your enemies, and possibly your neighbors, seeing as they are often one and the same. Alucard clings to his humanity more than his vampiric nature. It's such an interesting, even if it's unintentional, depiction of the difference between vampires and humans, and how you might find yourself being a little bit of both at times. Yet, in all circumstances, we need to fight against our sinful nature as much as humanly possible. The old cheesy adage, do your best and let God do the rest, comes to mind. God gives us cognizance of sin, not so that we avoid it, because given our sinful nature, that much is impossible, but that we can remedy and recognize the root cause of that sin. Instead of rationalizing or justifying our own problems, placing their cause on others, we identify our own failings and shortcomings. Then we can tear these problems from the root rather than the branch, and throw the useless plant into the fire. So it is with Christians. We must continually identify, seek, and destroy those things that make us less like Christ. Unfortunately, we don't get a totally radical sword or a set of physical armor to do that, but we certainly get a spiritual one. It is the fault of the vampire that he doesn't recognize he needs one at all, and that brings him to his downfall. Romans 12 wouldn't make sense at all if this weren't the case. Be of the same mind towards one another. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him, and if he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in doing so, you will keep burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So does Elucard fight demons in a giant menagerie of monsters for the sake of humans rather than his actual father. He gave up his humanity long ago, and it seems the catalyst came from Alucard's mother. Who could love those enemies that killed his only love? Dracula's link to the human world shatters in that moment 300 years before the start of the game, or probably more depending. Yet Alucard, by the timeline standards, fight his father due to his mother's words, not his father. He sees the route that his father continues every hundred years, a never-ending cycle of death and destruction in an elaborate castle of chaos. I suppose that makes the ending speech all the more poignant in that respect. Go back whence you came. Trouble the soul of my mother no more. How? How? How is it that I've been so defeated? You have been doomed ever since you lost the ability to love. Ha. Ah. Sarcasm. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the world and loses his own soul? 
Matthew 16.26, I believe. Tell me, what, what were Lisa's last words? She said, do not hate humans. If you cannot live with them, then at least do them no harm. For theirs is already a hard lot. She also said to tell you that she would love you for all of eternity. Lisa, forgive me. Farewell, my son. A vampire can't love. He only loves himself. By doing that, you lose your whole soul in the process. For a soul does not exist in captivity or isolation, either from others or from the one who created you. That's a message to keep. Honestly, I didn't think of any of this stuff when I was 11. I simply enjoyed the game. But now I see the plot actually encourages role-playing in a certain way. You're half-human and half-vampire. Now deal with it. You get some powers and not others, and Symphony of the Night doesn't need to present the player with the power of moral agency to remain effective. Sure, you might laugh at the horrible voice acting, or the even improved horrible voice acting in the PSP release, but remove your post-internet ironic cynicism for a second, and you'll see it's a very traditional story presented in video game form. One that endeared itself to me and probably everyone else who bought it without even knowing it. I started this long, 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 long monologue by saying how Castlevania was best when it was dumb and completely lacked self-awareness, and that still holds true. You can hit a mark and understand a concept even without the contextual awareness required to comprehend it fully. Somehow, Iga did that without even knowing it, a happy accident of time, place, and circumstance. Those tend to mark video games that stay with us, after all. That's the mark of a great game, one that infiltrates your mind without heavy-handed story tropes and symbolism. And that's why I did this theology gaming monologue. Well, I hope you enjoyed this long, long, long exposition on Castlevania Symphony of the Night. This has been Theology Gaming Monologues. If you liked what you heard, you can go on iTunes and subscribe to the Theology Gaming Podcast, where there are more of these monologues and also more of our actual podcast, which seems to have floundered on a consistent schedule this summer, but we'll get back right into it as soon as uh, people get back on the internet and stuff. If you like what you heard, give us a five-star rating. It's much appreciated. Tell your friends, and if you want to ask me questions or hear more about video games and theology together in general, you can go to theologygaming.com or you can go to our Facebook group, Theology Gaming University, where we kind of talk about this stuff all the time. My name is Zucker Oliver, and I will see you next time.